This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be able to be here with you all today and open the Word of God, even online together. We're continuing in our series, Walk in the Way. We're talking about the essential marks of a disciple, someone who follows Christ, the things that define them. And today we're talking about the mark of a disciple of witnessing, someone who shares the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, both in their lifestyle and with their words. My friend Ryan gave a great definition of what witnessing is. He said, it's to point to something. It's to point to truth. And the reality is we point to truth all the time and we witness all the time. You could think of a classic example, like in a courtroom where a witness is gonna be called forward. In that situation, they're going to point to a specific truth or reality in the case. And they're going to say, this is what the truth is. But we witness to things in all sorts of ways in our life. The things that we believe in, the things that we hope in, the things that we want to promote, we're always witnessing to. If you scroll through Twitter, you're gonna see people witnessing to something. If you turn on the news, you're gonna see people witnessing to something. Or even if you just have a conversation really with anyone, we witness to things in our day-to-day life. And our world is full of messages. It's full of voices, of ideologies, of philosophies, of political theories, of ways of life and opinions and religions. And the question that we wanna ask today is, in the sea of voices in our culture, what is it that makes the Christian voice distinct? How does the Christian voice not just become drowned out as another voice in our culture, just some more white noise to the sea of voices? And so our main question today is this, in the sea of voices, what makes the Christian witness or voice distinct? Is there something about the way that Christians are to walk and talk and live that is different in the world? Now, in order to answer that question, we're gonna go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book that was written to a group of Christians whom Peter calls elect exiles. Elect because they are chosen by God as his people and exiles because they're not yet home. They live in a land that is not their own while they await their hope of being with God himself. And as elect exiles, Peter urges them to live lives that are distinct, to be holy in their conduct and in their lifestyle, to love others, even loving those who persecute them, to bless those who persecute them, and to endure in the face of evil, suffering, and opposition with their hopes set on God. And as they live in this distinctive way, their hope is supposed to be set on God while they await his return as a witness to the world of what God has done for them as calling them as his people. So today we're gonna look at what it means to walk as a distinct witness in the world in the way of Christ as followers of Jesus. And we're gonna learn from 1 Peter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them, them up to 1 Peter 3. And we're gonna be in verses 13 to 18. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would give us wisdom. We know that it's your spirit who gives life and that your word is living and active and it is meant to sanctify us and to set us apart in your truth, Lord. And so I pray that you would change us, you would mold us and Lord, that your word would 
define us. And today that we would be made a distinct people, even to a new degree, through the hearing and through the understanding and through the glorifying of you and your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter three thirteen to 18 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. During this time, we're gonna talk about four things from this passage that make the Christian witness distinct. And I'll just kind of lay out the roadmap so you know where we're going. Uh, The Christian witness is distinct because it is rooted in hope. The Christian witness is distinct because it's rooted in hope. It's relayed in love. Third, it's realized in our character. And finally, it's rewarded by God. So the Christian witness is distinct because it's rooted in hope, relayed in love, realizing character and rewarded by God. First, let's look at this rooted in hope. In verse 15, Peter tells his audience that they should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in them, the hope that is in them. Now, being hopeful in our world is an impressive thing. To be hopeful in the first place is always an impressive thing. People might wonder, what is it about your life? What hope do you have? What do you know that I don't know? But if you're hopeful in the midst of suffering, well, that's just on a whole new level. And that's the context that Peter is writing here. He's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering. And he tells them in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? He's making the point that people won't normally harm you if you go about doing good. But then in the next verse, he clarifies something. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you do suffer obeying God, you will be blessed. He's making this promise to them that your temporary suffering in obedience to God cannot take away the eternal reward that God has for you. And therefore he tells them in the midst of the suffering, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear those who would seek to harm you, but instead in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Christians need to be ready to give a defense of hope especially when the hope that they have does not fit with their circumstances, when it doesn't make sense according to what people would expect. That's the type of situation that would provoke a question. Why are you hopeful in this moment? What do you know? This doesn't make sense to me. At the beginning of 1 Peter 3, Peter gives instructions to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And he says that they are to show respect to their husbands. And he he paints a portrait. They are supposed to live out respect, honor, love, fearlessness, and a life of hope and good works. 
Now, if you think of that situation, a wife with an unbelieving husband who's showing respect to her husband, but perhaps is not having the same respect and love reciprocated to her, well, that's the type of situation that would provoke a question. Why do you live this way? And it's into those types of situations that Peter is really speaking, having a hope that provokes a question, that raises a question of why do you have hope? And notice too what Peter says that in verse 15, that we're supposed to give a defense of hope. Peter could have said a number of things. He could have said, give a defense of the lifestyle that you have. Give a defense of the virtue that you have, the ethics you have. I think those things would have all been well and good and legitimate, but he focuses on hope. And perhaps the reason for that is that hope is actually the whole foundation and source and fuel of the Christian life. It's through hope that we first come to know God. And then it's through hope that we continue to persevere today. A way you could think about it is like this, that hope is the fuel of the Christian life. Maybe you've run out of fuel in your car at one point. Uh, I've done this once in my lifetime. There was a time that my friend had asked me to drive his car from point A to point B after his wedding. And so I got in the car with a couple of my buddies and this was an older truck and the fuel gauge was broken. And so we were driving down the road and all of a sudden the, the truck begins to give out, the light starts to flicker on and off and we pull over to the side of the road and we weren't sure what was going on. And it wasn't some grand mechanical mishap. It was simply that we had ran out of fuel. And so I was trying to get from point A to point B, but I really just made it from point A to point A and a half. And we didn't make it the whole way. We were broken down on the side of the road and we had to call people to come and pick us up and give us help. But, but the point is this, a car needs fuel to keep going forward. And if we think of our lives as Christians, I think it could also be said that the Christian life needs fuel to keep moving forward. And that fuel is the hope of the gospel. And Peter gives us greater insight into what is the hope of the gospel in 1 Peter, in the first chapter, verses three to five. This is 1 Peter 1, three to five. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter makes clear that the hope of the Christian life is the gospel. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that hope is saved for us. It is secured for us. And even now God is persevering us through these times that we would achieve and receive our hope. And this is the hope that Peter is writing to them, that they have been chosen by God. They have been given this hope. And he's saying that this hope is supposed to be lived out in the life of a Christian in such a way as to provoke questions from an unbelieving world. And so maybe we should ask ourselves, do we know this hope? Is it fueling our lives in the way that we live today. It can really be easy to not have hope. And I think in these days, it can be especially easy to lose hope. But what we're called to in Christ is a hope that is meant to motivate us. And it's actually the foundation of our witness as people ask, what is this hope that you have? Perhaps that it would provoke questions. So the Christian witness is distinct because it's rooted in this hope, the hope of the gospel. 
Next, the Christian witness is distinct because it's relayed in love. In verse 15, Peter says that we're to give a defense of the hope um, and that we are to do it. He goes on and he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So notice two things. We should be ready to explain our hope as Christians. If someone asks, why do you live differently? We should be ready to explain with our words, this is the message of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that I have come to. So that perhaps maybe they would hear and understand and receive it. We're supposed to be ready to give a defense. And yet he says, do it with gentleness and respect. And what that means that it's not just the content of the gospel that we need to be ready to share, but we need to have the way we share the gospel be in line with the content of the gospel. It's not enough just to tell the cold details, but he's saying there's supposed to be a gentleness and respect, even perhaps to those who seek to do you harm as you share your hope in this world. In 1 Corinthians 13 Paul gives us more insight into this. And he talks about just the significant role that love has in the life of a Christian and how if you take love out of the life of a Christian, it just all falls flat. Our witness, our life, our hope, it, it just all falls flat. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13, two to three says. It says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This verse should set us back a little bit here. Because what Peter just, or Paul's just said in this verse is that if we are willing to give away all that we have, all of our money, all of our possessions, and then say, that's not enough. I need to give up myself. And we give up ourselves for others, and yet we don't have love, there's nothing to be gained by that. Even if you give up your body to be burned, the way you can think about it is if you go to the stake as a martyr and be burned for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you don't have love, there is nothing to be gained. That's the impact of what Paul is saying in this situation. And that should have tremendous implications for how we share our faith in this world, for how we talk about heated issues in this world and how we talk about political issues in this world and how we talk about everything and witness to the gospel in our lives. If we do not have love, we do not have anything to gain. And so here's a question that we should be able to ask ourselves, regardless of whether we're right in any given situation, does it even matter? Does it even matter that you're right in this situation? Do you have anything to gain? Because if we sacrifice love, we have nothing to gain. Because the reality is no amount of zeal or passion can make up for a lack of Christ-like character. We cannot truly witness to the kingdom of God apart from the character of Christ the King. And Christ came into this world full of grace and truth. So we're to relay the gospel in love. One way you could think about it is that gentleness and respect and, and the loving response of a Christian, gentleness and respect are like smells from the bakery of the kingdom of heaven. If you're walking by a bakery on the street, you might walk by and you might go, man, there's something in there. There's, there's, it smells good in there. I want to stop in. And so you go into the bakery and you see cinnamon rolls or buns or bread or whatever it may be. And you realize, oh, that was the source of this smell and this aroma. And maybe there should be something about even the way we talk as Christians, that maybe someone would walk by 
perhaps even before they hear the whole conversation and they say, there's something different in the way that that person is talking. There's something different about their voice, about a hope, about a love, a kindness, a gentleness and respect that just seems different. And it makes other people say, I want to stop in and I want to know more. Now, we need to be honest because the reality is even if we share the gospel with gentleness and respect, it's possible that our message will still be a stench to others. But we don't want the message of the gospel to be a stench simply because we lack the character of the kingdom of God simply because we're compromising to anger and bitterness. Showing gentleness and respect often will go against our natural inclinations, especially when others seek to do us harm. But I'm convinced that what our world needs today is people who are full of hope. People who are full of hope, who seek to do good, who seek to do justice and mercy in the world, and who speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. In our culture, that should be like streams in a desert. That should be something where people say, whoa, what is the source of life and hope and refreshment in the way that you talk and speak and live as Christians? So that it might drive them to the fountain, might drive them to our God. So the Christian witness is to be distinct because it's rooted in hope, because it's relayed in love, and next, because it's realized in character. After speaking of giving a defense with gentleness and respect, Peter goes on to say, he says, having a good conscience, this is verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, a Christian's character is meant to safeguard them against accusations of evil. You could think of it sort of like a shield that a Christian puts in front of them. And their character is meant to be a defense against slander, accusations of evil, and accusations of sin. Now, earlier in verse 13, Peter recognized people won't normally harm you if you're zealous for what's good. But if they do, your reward can't be taken away. But here he's noting something a little bit different. He's claiming that your lifestyle should be so evident that ultimately when people look at you and accuse you of being an evildoer, they just look foolish. If someone would slander you as a Christian, ultimately it just looks foolish because your life testifies to something else. First Peter 2.12 is a place in Peter where he says something similar. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, the Gentiles meaning the non-Christian world, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying the, the character of a Christian, the good conscience of a Christian should actually assure them of what is to come, that the slander that comes up against them will not ultimately stand, but it assures them and gives them peace in the midst of suffering. However, we need to know it is possible to suffer for doing good, but it's also possible to suffer for doing evil. First Peter 4 Verses 14 to 15, Peter says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for Christ, you're blessed. But this, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But then he goes on, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's just helpful for us to know that it's possible to suffer for doing evil. So if we slander someone else and they slander us in return, there's no reward for that. That's just what we should expect to happen. If we cheat on our taxes and thus steal, there's no reward for that if we get caught. If we blast someone on social media and vent our anger and our bitterness, there's simply no reward for that. 
And so we should be able to distinguish between being a martyr who testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ and being a meddler who suffers for doing evil and causes division and controversy. They're not the same thing. And we should be able to tell the difference in our own life. Are we suffering for good or for doing evil? And a good way that you can tell if you're suffering for good or evil, perhaps would be to go to a place like Matthew 5, through seven. And look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he beautifully delivers the ethics of God's kingdom for us as his people. Or you could ask the questions, even from this passage, am I living out this hope? Am I living out a gentleness and respect that would give me a clear conscience or good conscience? Do I have a good conscience in my actions in this situation? Or perhaps you could think of the fruit of the spirit. Am I living with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are those the type of things that mark and define my actions in these moments? And if we're assured of that, then our conscience can protect us against slander that comes our way. But we also need to recognize that we are not going to do this perfectly. We're not always going to perfectly witness to the kingdom of God. And at times, if we find ourselves off, perhaps it's an opportunity to lead us to repentance to look to Christ, who is the one who has perfectly fulfilled the ethics of God's kingdom and to say, God, I need your help. I know in my failure that I cannot do this on my own. I know that you offer me grace. And then to look to Christ for grace to continue to move forward because none of us are going to do this perfectly, but God does intend that we would be as a people and individually those whose character is actually standing out and distinct in the world. So the Christian witness is distinct because it's rooted in hope, because it's relayed in love, because it's realized in character. And finally, the Christian witness is distinct because it's rewarded by God. Verse 17 says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now we said, if we suffer for evil, there's no reward. But if we suffer for good, we're assured that it's better. There's a purpose, there's a meaning behind it. And so let's ask this question then, why is it better to suffer for doing good than for evil? Well, first it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil because it's God's will. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. It's always better to do God's will, but more specifically, it's God's will that we would walk in the way of Jesus Christ. And the life of Christ was marked by suffering according to the will of God while doing good. Verse 17, he's told us it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. In verse 18, he makes this clear. This is the way of Christ. Verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, Christ suffered in our place. Christ was perfectly righteous and holy and distinct. And he came to us and he went to the cross so as to die in our place for me and for you, for unrighteous sinners, that we could be brought and restored into a relationship with God. This is the foundation of the gospel, this hope of life with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ's suffering, is important to understand, Christ's suffering on the cross is a one-time purchase of our salvation. 
But Christ's whole life of suffering is also a pattern that we are to walk in. Christ through his life walked in perfect obedience and was crucified as though he was the worst of sinners so that our lives might be brought to God. And we as his followers are actually called to walk in the steps of Christ, to emulate the pattern in the way of his life. And so it's better It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil because it's God's will that we would walk in the footsteps of Christ in his suffering and in our glorification, receiving the reward with him. Because as we suffer with Christ, we are guaranteed that we will also be glorified and receive our reward with Christ. So a way you could think about this is that Christianity does not promise deliverance from suffering. Meaning if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you'll never suffer. Things will never be hard. It actually promises deliverance through suffering, that it's through the life of Christ following in his footsteps in suffering and humiliation, and then to glory that we are delivered from suffering. So not deliverance from suffering. So you never suffer, but deliverance through suffering and that through suffering with Christ, We receive our reward. We receive our hope. And one of the dangers that we can get into as Christians is when we believe that as Christians, we really shouldn't suffer or be uncomfortable or have to go through difficult things in life. So much of our culture is obviously accustomed to comfort and avoiding suffering. And I find that so easy in my own life, just to seek what's comfortable and easy. But if that mentality flips and goes into the Christian life, it's dangerous. That isn't meant to be how we live as Christians. If that's the way, we may actually avoid identifying as a Christian, sharing the message of the gospel or living out our faith in fear. Fear that others might look down upon us. Fear that others might insult us. Fear that it might be uncomfortable or we might be rejected. However, here's an encouragement that we can have. Any suffering that we receive as a Christian ultimately assures us that we belong to Jesus. It assures us that we are walking in the way of Christ. And if we're walking in the way of Christ, we can be confident that we will suffer with Christ, but two, that we will receive glory with Christ and that our hope with God is bound up in Christ and in walking in his footsteps. And so what that means then is suffering ultimately is not something to be avoided as a Christian. Suffering is a sweet reminder of our intimacy with Jesus Christ. That in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because Christ has overcome the world. That Christ is in you, that you are living and walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and God's spirit is upon you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you, that he is with you in the midst of suffering. That should free us to say, Lord, whatever may come, May I be a faithful witness. May I boldly and confidently proclaim the gospel in my life. So getting back to our original question, in the sea of voices, what is it that makes the Christian voice, the Christian witness distinct? Ultimately, it's the way of Christ lived out in us. It's Christ in you that makes the Christian witness distinct. It's the hope of Christ in you. It's it's the love of Christ shown in you. It's the character of Christ manifested in you. It's the reward and the pattern of Christ's life going on in your own life. We are called to walk as Christ in the world. And that's a tremendously high call. But we need to understand that this is a call that God has put on our lives, that he does not leave us to our own devices to do. 
If we were merely to say walk like Christ, we cannot do that. But the hope of the gospel is that God has made it possible to be what he asks us to be through his son, Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, 9 says this, identifying the people of God, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are asked to proclaim the excellencies of God in the world, to be a city on a hill, to let our light shine before others. They would see our good deeds and give glory to our father in heaven. But we are called to do it as those who were called out of darkness, out of sin, which means whatever we've been in, whatever sin and darkness we have been in, God has the ability and the power to redeem. And the beautiful thing that he is doing through his people is redeeming us that we might be a light to the world. And so this is the logic of the gospel. Everything God asks you to do as a Christian, he equips you to do in Christ. We're called to live out the hope of the gospel, but we do that as those who have been saved and born again to a living hope through Christ and through his life, death, and resurrection. We're called to love others, but God first loved us in his own son, Jesus Christ. We're called to live out the character of Christ, but Christ has gone before us as our example, before us as our savior, and his spirit now lives inside of every single Christian, empowering them to walk and live in the way of Christ. And we're called to endure suffering in the pattern of Christ's life. But Christ went before us into suffering. His spirit awaits us in our suffering. And we are promised that we will be glorified with him through suffering in the way of Christ. So as Calvary Bible Church in Boulder, Thornton, Erie, as God's people scattered across all the world with our brothers and sisters abroad, may we be the people who walk in the way of Christ that the gospel may be known to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world. I pray that we would know the hope of the gospel that would fill us today and that we, along with our brothers and sisters all over the world, would make you known and that you would return quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.